Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Hey there, nerdlings. We're honored to have gotten the chance to speak with some very special guests for this week's episode. It's a two-parter, so we hope you enjoy part one of our chat with Lee and Anthony Redgrave from Redgrave Research Forensic Services. They were kind enough to answer all of our burning questions on forensic genetic genealogy, as they are both exceptional in this field. We hope you find this as fascinating as we did. Thanks for listening. All right, so we have Anthony and Lee with us today. So if you could introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about what brought you into the forensic genealogy field. Hi, I'm Anthony Redgrave. I am one of the two lead forensic genetic genealogists for Redgrave Research Forensic Services. And we got into the forensic genetic genealogy field because we both had our own family history mysteries to solve. And we did them with a combination of family tree research and with DNA. And once we graduated from that and started helping other people, we just started finding harder and harder puzzles. Eventually we ended up volunteering for the DNA Doe project and we moved on to form our own company after being there for a while. That's amazing. And I'm Lee Bingham Redgrave and I am the other lead forensic genetic genealogist for Redgrave Research. And we also run a training course that Anthony's been developing as part of his doctoral program to help people learn how to do this type of work themselves for cold cases, either, you know, active detectives Mm -hmm. within their departments to learn how to form their own units to do it inside of their agencies or people in forensics adjacent fields or people who are already working in genealogy who want to learn to apply that to this technique. Wow. That's amazing. Really amazing work. So would this allow for everyday people to kind of work their way towards doing what you both do? Basically, yeah, the short answer is yes. Yeah. Um, There is a lot of work to be done. And there are a lot of people out there who are really well suited to it, but don't really have a way to get into it. Yeah. Um, For reasons of not having the connections, not having the full experience of all the different moving parts Mm -hmm. of what it takes to do forensic genetic genealogy work, because it's more than just being able to build a family tree. It's more than being able to interpret DNA matches. There's a lot of things like being able to search for really, really specific information on the Internet, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing how to work with degraded DNA kits. There's a lot of pieces to it. So since there's not set standards of practice for the field and there's not a clear educational path yet i'm making that (laughs) Um, what what people have to push forward to represent themselves as forensic genetic genealogists is their experience so the training course has an internship program that allows people to gain that experience with appropriate supervision to make it so that there's more people to solve these hard cases. And yes, it can just be regular people because we're all just regular people. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> the last thing that we want is people who maybe have solved some adoptee cases thinking, oh, I know how to do this. I can just go to my local department and ask for them to just give me a DNA right. kit to work. It's not that simple. It's actually quite different. Mm -hmm. And they're also making it so that we can't 
really legitimize the field as its own type of forensic science, which we're, we're trying to do, Absolutely. I think, as a, as a forensic genetic genealogy community. And by the way, investigative genetic genealogy is the other term. Oh, okay. So FGG or IgG are the same. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, okay. That's awesome. There's not a consensus on that. So just so, so I say that up front. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fascinating. I've seen both. So that helps a lot. You know, it's one of the things that Ash and I run into a lot when we're, because we primarily focus on cold cases or unsolved cases. So I will see those two terms frequently. And I was never really sure if there was a, a difference or if they were interchangeable or not. So they're really interchangeable. Different professionals use different mm. terms. Um, they're trying to differentiate from just saying forensic genealogy because that can mean. And, and prior to this new field you know, being used for cold cases, what it meant for years is uh, actually probate work for, you know, like, like air research, looking for the um, the heirs of someone who died, who left an oh, estate. That makes and sense. So genealogists have been hired by lawyers to do that type of research. And that's called forensic genealogy. Oh, and it doesn't involve DNA. So the genetic part is really what's very different about it and uh, what makes it applicable to cold cases. Okay, that makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. So if you could um, just give us and our listeners actually a little bit of background into just what forensic genealogy is and how it's being used in cold case investigations today, that would be super helpful just so that everyone kind of has a better understanding of what the field is. Sure. Um, Forensic genetic genealogy is the use of traditional genealogy and genetic genealogy with DNA for law enforcement purposes. So when it's involved in an actual legal investigation, that's what the forensic part of it means. Uh, Forensic just refers to anything that has to do with a legal investigation. And the genetic genealogy part is the use of DNA in collaboration with tree building to find out how people are genetically related to each other and find a person who relates to them and put the pieces together. So let me say that a little more clearly. (laughs) Um, So forensic genetic genealogy is the use of genetic genealogy techniques for law enforcement. And what you do is very similar to how you would do an adoptee search, or if you didn't know who one of your parents was and you took a DNA test and you uploaded Uh it, what you do is you find all these people who are genetically related to you. Right. And the theory is that if you have two people who you share DNA with and you know where those two people came from and they have a common ancestor and you have one other person that you don't know where they came from, but they have shared DNA with those two. Right. They probably come from about the same place. So by doing that over and over and over again and finding a whole bunch of people who match each other and where those lines feed in to make all those common ancestors, or at least most of them filter down into one person that's how you get to the human identification part of it. And um, it can take a really long time or can take a couple of years. It really depends on who's uploaded into the system. It depends on how close the matches are. Depends on um, the cousin relationships. So this is the same thing that we did. So I was adopted when I was a baby. Actually, I was given up for adoption before I was even born. The papers were signed before I came out. So I knew growing up that I wanted to do my own search. Um, As soon as I turned 18, that was my plan. Um, DNA wasn't a thing yet. Right. Or DNA test wasn't a thing. So I did um, as much searching as I could just on my own traditionally and filled in most of my questions, but still didn't 
know for sure who my father was. And so I really needed DNA to confirm that. And um, Anthony kind of needed the same thing. His paternity also was not really known. Well, your your paternal line wasn't known. Yeah. My tree was uh, really confusing. So I grew up not knowing my father. Yeah. And first I found my father's family using traditional means. It took me like over 20 years of occasional like really deep dive searching on the internet to find my father's family. But then I found out that nobody was really sure of who his father was or his father before him. So we have this long line of people without the right surname. Uh, We can get into that later. (laughs) Um, So by using a combination of traditional searching and also eventually DNA, I was able to confirm not only who my father was, but also who my grandfather was. And also my maternal great grandfather was also a mystery to my mom's family. And that was the other part of my tree that was never filled in. So again, with the using all those matches that you have when you, when you log in, you see, these are all the people you're related to, but what what you hope is that you have really close matches that you have some first cousins or, you know, some aunts or uncles or something that you can look at or great aunts or great uncles and that you can piece it together fairly easily. But when you're uploading a kit for a doe, for example, for a doe case or a perpetrator case, and you don't know exactly how old the person is, you don't know where they were born, you already have some unknowns going into it, and then you get, oh, well, there's nothing closer than fourth cousins here. Right. This is going to take a while. Yeah. So it's really, it's the same kind of thing. You know, we uploaded our DNA to find out things about our relatives and we're able to do that fairly easily mm-hmm. because we had good matches. Mm-hmm. But with doe cases and perpetrator cases, it's a more limited database because we're only allowed to use a couple of the databases. And there's also just the unknowns going in. And then also sometimes the DNA itself is degraded. So it's like uh, missing some pieces. Okay. That makes sense. I, I, wow. I didn't realize how it all worked. So, so when the DNA is degraded, that's a whole different ball game of how to handle Mm -hmm. that. So there are limited amounts of DNA databases that you can access. If I'm correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Ancestry.com is one of those that cannot be used in the sense of like crimes and things like that. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Um, Ancestry, MyHeritage, and 23andMe all have specific wording in their terms of service that says you can't use it for law enforcement. Oh, okay. When you upload to MyHeritage, you actually have to click a a checkbox that says you're not doing that. So they really don't want you to do that. Oh, wow. I didn't (laughs) Um, realize that. Yeah. So what we have to work with is Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. Family Tree DNA is a larger database because it's a consumer database where people just send their samples to and then they're up and they don't have to do the extra stuff. And GEDmatch is people from all the other services, all all the places where you can send your samples can upload them to GEDmatch and opt in. So you have to like know how to do that and know that you should do that in order to do that. So sometimes there's less to work with, but you can also ask people to upload there if you really need them to. So that's useful. So let's say somebody did test at Ancestry and a forensic genetic genealogist was working on a case and Mm -hmm. found an Ancestry user who had a whole bunch of people in their tree that were in the same trees as the other people who they did have the DNA for. If they really needed to, and we try not to do this because we try to do as little contacting as possible. Right. If we really needed to do this, we could message this person and say, hey, we're working on an active law enforcement investigation. I can't give you all the details, but you might be 
genetically related to the person that we're trying oh. to identify, would you upload to GenMatch so we can compare? And then it would be okay. It wouldn't I be see. a violation of ancestry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how they're, okay. That makes sense. Because that was one thing I was trying to figure out in a lot of our research. I've seen stuff where I was trying to figure out how it ended up with law enforcement and how people ended up getting their DNA tested or matches were made that way. That makes sense to me now. I think that there's not a lot of law enforcement reaching out to people to ask them to test. I think that's just starting to happen a little bit because it's really tricky to figure out who you should ask to test. Right. Um, You have to be able to look at trees you've already built and analyze where you need to rule out lines if you have a really complicated puzzle. It's really a giant logic problem. Yeah. Yeah. You have to rule things in and out and narrow your fields down. So you can use a target tester, a person who may be related to a family you're looking at, and you can ask them if they're willing to submit a test. And by comparing them, you can say, oh, well, they don't match as highly as this other group of people over here. So it's like warmer, colder. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes getting somebody who doesn't share anything is actually really useful information because that gives you like a whole section of family where not to look. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that when you do ask people, are they more than likely going to say yes? Or is it kind of like 50-50? <laughs> oh, you'll you'll like this. So I always hope for the best. Yeah. And always firmly believe in the good nature of all humankind. I love that. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's not that way. <laughs> <laughs> the online training course that I've developed actually has a simulated case that within this simulated case, you can send fake emails. It's a game. So it's like you you send an email and you get something back. All the responses are based on some of the crazy things that people have actually sent back to me. (laughs) 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 Sometimes it's things like, why are you accusing me of this? I didn't murder anybody. Sometimes it's, are you going to clone me or steal my information? (laughs) Oh my God. God. You know, you can be as, as clear with people as possible, but sometimes it just doesn't get through. Right. Sometimes you need to just coax them a little bit. But I think most people really want to help. And if they understand that they don't have to be scared and they understand that their information is actually safe with us because we don't release any information about right. the trees at all. We're all under NDA. We're all under a non-disclosure agreement when we're working on active cases for law enforcement. So we're not allowed to give out any information about matches. So we can tell them that and that helps them. Oh yeah. But a lot of times they're already scared before we ever contact them because there's a lot of clickbaity, you know, mm-hmm. scary articles out there. Yeah. Fear mongering. Yeah. Because people yeah. click on them mm-hmm. yeah. um, about how your information is, is not safe. And it's definitely an area where there needs to be more education. And if you can just educate people calmly and explain things, usually they'll be like, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> That's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So usually people are very reasonable. That's, you know, it's funny because that's one of the big things that Ash and I focus on on our show is really trying to like keep to the facts and educate people about like every piece of information that they can because we don't want people to just assume things or to not understand how some a process works. It is hard out there and a lot of misinformation. So I support that wholeheartedly. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, we're definitely focused on educating as much as possible mm-hmm. uh, 
because we run an educational program. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's always on our mind. Uh, and we do a lot of answering the same questions and it does not bother us one bit because we would rather people have accurate information. Oh yeah. I love that. And, and, you know, that was one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is our own curiosity, but also because this is a fascinating field. And I think that a lot of us don't know the ins and outs and how it all works. And so, you know, I was always a little murky on how it went from, you know, when you do your DNA to investigation. So I think that's really an important piece. I'd actually always assumed before Ash and I started doing this, people were doing it through like Ancestry or, you know, what have you, any of those um, 3ME or whatever it is. I always thought it was that. And so uh, when we started getting into Jane and John Doe cases is when we learned otherwise. And that was fascinating and completely eye-opening for me. So it was just something that I think a lot of folks don't realize that it's not, that that's not how it works. Well, honestly, it's still a baby field. Brand yeah. New. The Golden State Killer was 2018. Yeah. Then that really is what changed it. It really was. Less than two years ago, really, yeah. since Crazy. I didn't know anything about this. I mean, it's a little longer than that, but it's mm. it's it's really just now being able to um, become standardized in any way at all. Yeah. Because it was just exploding at first. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really hard to understand information when it's flying in all directions and Yeah. People have started now to be able to organize like webinars about it so you can get clear information. So I think people will start understanding more how it works, the applications of it, Mm -hmm. and that even more cases will start getting submitted to companies that do this type of work. Yeah. Because even people who are detectives don't necessarily understand how it works. So yeah. don't feel bad if if you didn't understand until yeah. recently, like there's still some plenty of detectives out there who still don't understand exactly how it works. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we have the training course. So That's awesome. There's some aspects of the work that even I'm still learning because there's so many people involved in actually getting a usable DNA kit to upload. Yeah. You have to go through sometimes three different labs. And then you have to go to bioinformatics, which is taking the data that comes from the lab and making it into a small enough file to actually upload to a database. That's usually someone who's a computer scientist who also has DNA knowledge. There's a lot of parts to it. And there's a lot of people working behind the scenes. It's not just us. It's not just the genealogists doing this. There are lab scientists and computer scientists and cold case investigators who led the way before us and got all the information that's contextual that we need to do this. And it's really a team effort. Wow. And then the anthropologists. We love our anthropologists. So I much. love anthropology. As an oh, yeah. anthropology nerd, I'm like, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's the field that this always seems similar to, and it's all right, yeah. is anthropology. Here's an important thing that I really want to throw in here is when you're working with an adoptee client, that adoptee client can tell you, I know that I was born in this place on this date, and I kind of know who my parents are based on the non-ID information from the adoption agency. You don't get that with an unidentified person. What we have, instead of that, are anthropologists being able to give us an anthropological estimate of how old this person was, their postmortem interval, and any other markers they can give us that might like fill in the gaps for that non-ID that you might have for an adoptee. They, they are the person who gives us that information when the person we're trying to ID can't tell us. Mm-hmm. Right. And if the police have that information and we get that information from the police, we know that the police got it from an anthropologist in the first place. Right. <laughs> 
So kind of leading up to that, I know you mentioned that you were both adopted and trying to kind of complete your own history. What made you both decide to create your own research facility and to get into the field of forensic genealogy? Well, first off, I, I wasn't adopted. I just didn't know who my dad was. Oh, I see. I'm I, sorry. Had, I had my mom growing up, but that was it. I, I had like a photograph of my dad with his name and birth date on it. I see. And, um, you know, ancestry wasn't as cool as it is now. So it took me a really long time to use that information yeah. to find him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I just had it right there. If somebody had handed me that today, I would know who my father was in probably a half an hour. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing how far it's changed. Um, so there's that. But what really led us to want to form our own business based around the concept of education and uh, transparency to others so that they know what we're doing as much as we can tell them what we're doing, right? We're working with open investigations, is that this makes such a difference to so many people. Like, mm-hmm. you think it makes a huge difference when you finally figure out who your parents are or who your long lost great grandfather is. That's really great. And then you have yeah. all this filled in, you know where you came from. But what if your sister's missing? You know, what right. if you don't know what happened to your mom or your grandma and they're actually like out there missing somewhere? Yeah. What, it, who's going to take care of that? That's something that we can give back to people who are waiting when other means have not produced that answer. And same with detectives, detectives and coroners and medical investigators who have had that one case that is the one that they can't retire until they solve it. Yep. We're doing that for them too. So just giving people that peace is a huge deal. And um, we want to just keep being able to give that and make there be more people who can give that to others. Yeah. And also I, I had been working towards forming my own genealogy company just to do genealogy mm-hmm. in general, not specific to forensics because that didn't exist yet. And then we had a friend who was murdered and oh. um, she was trans and intersex. And that was, you know, A, really upsetting, yeah. obviously, and B, made us think about things like what would happen if something happened to Anthony and he was not identified. Right. Because Anthony was born intersex and is trans. So that was simultaneous to us finding out about the DNA Doe project and volunteering for it. And so it kind of, all of those pieces fell together at the same time, really fast. Yeah. Um, It was really intense and just feels like, obviously was something that was supposed to happen at that time. Yeah. So that's how inspired against us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this now. Yes. <laughs> we, we very abruptly fell into doing this because it was a convergence of everything we had yeah. already been doing that we didn't know could lead up to this point because the field didn't exist yet. Right. So we were actually in the right place at the right time to help pioneer it and worked on the very first case that the NADO project had. So that's um, amazing. We were lucky, I guess, or unlucky, I guess. Depends on how you look. Um, I hope other fans. <laughs> Anthony was in school for uh, game design, really. So, yeah. I mean, he did design a game. I did. It's <laughs> That's true. A very different game. Yeah. I was going to design history and language games for middle schoolers, and now I'm teaching the police. Isn't that amazing? It's, <laughs> it's like it was meant to be. It's crazy. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I have chills, actually. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> that is amazing. It's so funny. We start on one path and then find a different one along the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I just like to think that it went down the way it was supposed to. So, yeah, I think so. I think so too. 
I'm sure there are a lot of people who are very thankful for both of you, you know, making that change and, and following in this path. So it feels like something we couldn't have said no to because yeah. how, how could you, if we know that we have the ability to do this right. and the opportunity, why would we say no to being able to help so many people? Absolutely. We get it deeply. When you have a platform or you have a means to do something, use it for good. Mm -hmm. So change the world one step at a time. Yep. I love it. I guess that kind of like is rolled up all into the next question that we had for the both of you was basically just what are the goals of Redgrave Research Forensic Services in regards to its work in forensic genealogy, which I mean, you kind of answered a little bit, but is there any other goals that you wanted to, to tell us? Oh, yeah. I think our actual goal is to find all of the applications, all of the possible applications for this. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Because we love to work on a variety of cases at once. And we're finding a bunch of different things we didn't know we could do. Right. um, Like wrongful conviction cases. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, rape kits are a big deal. Right. But also we have a couple of missing persons cases where we're working with the family members, making sure that they have their DNA uploaded and um, opted into GEDmatch and that they have a family tree that's attached so that people can see it and making sure that they have, you know, their flyers circulating in the right places and that they're in NamUs and things like that. Absolutely. So we're just trying to see what are all the various ways that we can help, I think, is our goal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very inspecific goal, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I can add to that by saying that, you know, one of my major goals is just making it so that this, uh, this technique and this, this entire field is accessible to the people who need it. Yes. um, In a way that is held to a standard. So let me let me give you a, a little bit of a metaphor. So when web design became a thing, yep. there were no people with degrees in web design because nope. it was brand new. They were all just like college kids doing it on their free time and getting really, really good at it. Now you need to get a doctorate in web design yeah. to be a web designer. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and that's because the field got flooded by people going, oh, hey, I can do this. Right. And some people weren't as good at it. And some people weren't as representative of what, their abilities were when applying for jobs. So mm-hmm. you need standards of practices, you need an educational foundation, and you need some accountability for when things don't go the right direction. And people need to know what to expect when they're hiring somebody. Mm-hmm. And people who might be DNA matches who are thinking, hey, I want to upload an opt-in to GEDmatch, but I don't know who's going to be looking at my data. They want to know if the people who are working in this field are safe to trust. Right. And most of us are, as far as I know, and I'm hoping that we can make more. <laughs> and, um, and that's really, my goal is to make it so that there are more people who can do what we do so that there can be more cases getting solved responsibly I love that. and hopefully in bulk because there's a huge, huge backlog, but it has to be done very carefully. And it's honestly kind of a precarious field because it's, all of these cases are tied into everyone's high, high running emotions. Yeah. Um, everyone feels very strongly about all of these cases, everyone involved. Yeah. And so Anthony's dissertation, he's trying to assess the needs of the various people who are affected by the field. Yeah. 
Right. Sure. Um, so I am a uh, I'm in a doctor of education program at University of New England, and uh, my dissertation topic is assessing the needs and fears and misconceptions of the people who are affected by the use of forensic genetic genealogy, and that includes people who are working on cases, mm. law enforcement individuals, and people in criminal justice and adjacent fields family members of victims and perpetrators and consumers of DNA tests. And all these people have different concerns and different needs for their safety and their privacy and their need for information as well. So there has to be an exchange and there has to be a place where all this converges and everybody feels like there's a fair decision made on how things should be done. So I am going to be doing a study in which I survey a whole bunch of people and ask them, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this being done in this situation? Like, what if there was a doe who was a baby? What if there was a doe who was a sex worker? Like, would it change your answer? So I can get what the real problem is Mm. and find a middle ground. I love that. Yep. I think we're trying to just make sure that the field can move forward and really become well-respected and legitimized so that the results of these investigations will get taken seriously in courts because as of right now, the information that we produce is just considered a tip. So when we pass off an ID to law enforcement, they still have to go and and confirm that with their own traditional means. They have to go and do their own DNA one-to-one comparison or find a fingerprint or something like that to compare and satisfy their requirements. And we've just tipped them off, basically. We've told them the right place to look. Okay. I didn't know that. Wow. So we're trying to make it so that we can figure out what would the standards need to look like to be considered evidence rather than a tip. Because right now we don't produce evidence. We produce a tip. Right. And it's more concrete if it can be switched over to being evidence and it saves a lot of back and forth and time too, I'm assuming Mm -hmm. for the future. Well, yeah, it would. And being considered evidence instead of a tip would mean that the field of forensic genetic genealogy would be considered a forensic science instead of an investigative tool. Right. Which that was something I I actually was not aware of. I always assumed it was kind of inclusive of that, but I, I did not realize it was not. So... It's sort of forensic science adjacent right now. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're figuring it out. It's it's sort of a hybrid of investigation and forensic science. That makes sense. It's different. So the rules have to be different on how to use it. Absolutely. And as time goes on, I mean, we've been seeing cases solved with it left and right over the mm-hmm. last two years. So I have no doubt that that's where this field is going. I would assume sooner than later. So yes. I... We just don't want to see something come into question in court right. that done properly and to have that make right. the whole field get called into question. Absolutely. Or throw out a case that, right. mm-hmm. you know, someone's been waiting 40 years to have solved. That makes total yeah. sense. The stakes are almost a little bit higher in a way. Yeah. So kind of talking on the the law enforcement piece, I know that you both are um, working on a training program for law enforcement, which is the FG4LE. Would you mind explaining, if you can, the background of that and what is involved with that training? Sure. Um, so when we started developing the, the training course program, it was when we were still working with the DNA Doe Project. And I had developed the training course as an alternate route for law enforcement professionals who wanted to learn how to do this themselves because the DNA Doe Project can only take Doe cases and only take Doe cases of adults. Right. 
of their mission statement. So in that regard, there were a number of law enforcement departments who wanted to be able to work on things themselves that the DNA deal project couldn't cover and also wanted to know what was being done when they submitted cases. So we developed this training course and when I realized it, it was growing beyond what I could do uh, from where I was, and we were on our way out with the DNA Doe Project, we incorporated our business and started expanding what we were able to do. So now what it is, is a, it's still the same model, but we've grown quite a bit to the point where we are actually able to guide law enforcement students through the process of getting things submitted to labs. And we have a case launch case workshop program where if a department has a case they want to start working on, but they want a hand getting it started, we'll help them through the lab process and work with them to get their footing for the first two weeks. And then we also have the internship program, which is a longer program that can take 12 to 18 months and anyone can apply for that. And then they're working with us directly on active cases that we've had submitted to us that we can actually take for a reduced fee from other from other genealogists because it's part of the educational path of my students. So it's a really symbiotic relationship yeah. that we have right now that I think it's a really solid model and I think it's going to work really well. So the material that's actually covered in the training course is some basic stuff on how to use ancestry and how to build family trees, some basic stuff on how to use GenMatch mm-hmm. and family tree DNA but also more advanced techniques that you need to know in order to work these cases, like how to do social media searching. If you need to find out a family tree and you don't want to bother somebody and tell them, Hey, your third cousin is dead. Nobody likes that. Right. (laughs) Nobody likes that. And we actually want to protect people from that. Or your third cousin is a rapist and you can't tell them that. No. (laughs) So really everything that we're doing is really in the best interests of everyone involved. And I just really want to stress that mm-hmm. we're not trying to be creepy and steal people's information. No. What we're actually trying to do is not give people a hard time with some stuff that they really don't need to deal with. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Cause there's a whole psychological piece of that on any one of those scenarios that people would have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to just have somebody who's trained in this to be able to go in and say, look, this is the facts and kind of almost take the emotional part of it out. Yes. Yeah. And, and also to know what to do if we do need to ask someone right. how to be honest, but also sensitive. Yeah. That's a huge part of it too. Like there's a lot of psychology that goes into it as well. A hundred percent. And so it makes sense that you want people trained in how to handle those situations. Yeah. The training course is much more of how to handle the differences of mm-hmm. a forensic case versus an adoptee case, what it isn't is how to do genealogy because there's a lot of those courses already. There's a lot of for free. You can actually just go to Ancestry Academy and a lot of it's for free there or the Family Search Wiki. I direct people there all the time, even my own students. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what my mom likes to do. She's a, she liaisons as a, she does it for fun for our family tree. That's how I got into this actually. But um, she does that. And, you know, she just goes through and kind of piece by piece puts everyone together. So there's the kind of like everyday person, like my mom who is doing it. And then there's the difference for crimes. So it makes sense that you would want to train it on a very specific thing. Yep. But you know what? All the people doing that work and putting up their family trees. And mm-hmm. if you can make a family tree and make it public, if you upload to Jedmatch, yeah. 
and you attach your family tree as a GEDCOM, yeah. that's, you're doing us a big, big, big favor oh. because I mean, you're, you're the record keepers right. and we don't have to go searching for them. If you just have them attached right there, that's fantastic. And that saves us a lot of time. So that's definitely something people, anybody can do yeah. who's listening, who wants to make our lives easier. Definitely. <laughs> I will. Build your family tree <laughs> and attach it in GEDCOMs and onto your GEDmatch. There's instructions on how to do that on help.fg4le.com, by the way. I set up a help wiki. Yay. <laughs> so we will put links to that too in our show notes for folks and on our social media so that awesome. anyone can use it. I will be directing my mom on how to do that. So um, so I will have firsthand user experience. I will do it myself that way because she's been working on ours forever. So I also just want to say, because I think you'll, you'll think this is neat, but also I think it's neat. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you think that one person doesn't matter, in an investigation, we can tell you stories in which one tester has really been the thing that solved a case. Isn't mm-hmm. that amazing? Wow. One upload, you know, somebody can send in a test and we get, yeah. you know, a surprise new match. It doesn't even have to be a close match. Yeah. It could be somebody that's oh, wow. from distant, but where that person matches in the autosomal chromosomes like that, that sometimes is the, the piece of the puzzle that we need. So it's very important. Here's a who. <laughs> be that one who shouting yop. So please upload. <laughs> I love that. That's sorry. That's so cute. <laughs> That's amazing though. And it really does show like each of us can make a difference even in a small way in our own ways to solve these cases. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes you realize too that we can all aid, we can all do our little piece and, you know, whether it's going on to name us and Doe Network and helping with data entry or what have you, logging stuff or uploading our genetic trees into the proper databases can really help researchers in, in solving these cold cases. So that's really cool. Absolutely essential. Absolutely. We can't yeah. do it without people doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of piggybacking on that, if you're willing and able to answer this question, actually, um, what cases were you both able to be a part of from a forensic genealogy and reconstruction point of view? Okay. Well, we talked before in the in the Finley Creek episode yeah. about having a good piece of forensic art can like really make a difference. It really makes a difference for forensic genealogy cases because people start looking similar in family groups and that actually does help guide us. So one example I can give, the name of the individual was not released, but a case that we worked on was a decedent who was found in Missouri and the family knew that he was deceased and his body was never recovered. I had the ability to make a piece of forensic art of him. Yeah. And that in combination with actually being able to communicate with that one key match actually really helped close out that case. And we did that in three days. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's one way in which that one person can, can really help. Wow. Um, so there was that one. That was, that's, a, that was uh, 1979. Yeah. He was, oh, wow. he was found in an agricultural field in 1979. He'd been burned in a routine oh. field fire and then run over with a tractor. Oh. And thankfully there was enough left of the skull for me to actually do that reconstruction and enough of his remains left to actually get a usable sequence out of. And he'd actually been miscategorized when he was first analyzed by the coroner in 1979 because they said he had small hands. So he was originally labeled as a Jane Doe. Oh, 
Wow. This just goes to show you how far we've come since 1970. <laughs> yeah. We've <absolutely>. learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, I think I had read somewhere too, that Finley, they were able to figure it out pretty quickly, but they weren't sure immediately when they first found her, if she was a Jane or John Doe. So I don't think people realize that when it's skeletal remains that are found, it, it can be really hard to determine gender. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sex estimation is just that it's an estimation. Mm-hmm. Right. And the estimation part sometimes falls off when you're filling out a form. Right. Um, and we're going to end up talking about transdo task force. So it's that's yeah, coming that's, up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's definitely a big focus of ours is yeah. how people have managed to fall through the cracks of this system when yeah. You know, there right. There should be plenty to go on to match those to missing people. Hundred uh, percent. How are there still so many those and still so many missing people? Mm-hmm. It's true. You know, it's funny. We just did a case. Uh, it's one of the most famous uh, baby doe cases. It's a uh, boy in the box. You know, that was one of the cases that I read about when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and completely sat with me that here's a case 64 years old and and this poor little one has never even been identified. So, you know, it's, it happens so much. I don't know if people realize how many cold and unsolved cases and Jane and John Doe cases, there just are. Mm -hmm. So to actually answer your question of what cases we've been involved in. Oh yeah, right. (laughs) uh, (laughs) No, uh, we've been involved in about two dozen uh, solved cases, Mm -hmm. um, contributing either by team leading or participating on the team. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of those were with the DNA Doe Project. Yeah. Including the first couple. Um, So the, the Joseph Newton Chandler case was actually the first one. And it wasn't the first announced, but it was the first solved. Yeah. And that was the the case of the man who um, had stolen an identity of yep. an eight-year-old boy who had died many years beforehand. Uh-huh. And the police didn't realize that he had been living under a stolen identity until after they had cremated him. Oh, no. So that was very interesting. It was a very, yeah. very interesting first case to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still one of the hardest ones, too, because um, the sample that was used to create the DNA kit was from a tumor biopsy that was stored in paraffin Whoa. wax at the hospital where the biopsy was done because he had cancer. Oh, um, wow. So not only were those cancerous cells stored in not really the best scenario, right. um, there was only about maybe 17 to 20% of his sequence actually oh, available. Man to get out of that sample. And we were still able to work with the team and make an ID based on just inference of what was there. And it's still like one of the most technically complicated cases that we've ever worked on. (laughs) And it was the first one. It was pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So there was that we did, uh, we were team leads for the bell in the well and we worked on the buckskin girl, uh, which was not really a lot of work because it was solved pretty much right away. Yeah. <laughs> like I took a nap and then I got up and we were, we were like almost there. Wow. <laughs> we worked on Lyle Stevick. We worked on Henry. Oh yeah. Henry, <laughs> Joseph Henry Loveless. We announced him just over a year ago. Just over a year ago. That, that was, was the right. Idaho cave body case. Um, he was dismembered and found in wow. uh, a couple of different discoveries in the yeah. same cave. He wow. was found twice, different yeah. parts of the were found twice, but his head was never found. Oh, wow. Um, and we, yeah, we started working with this case because of our anthropology friends, because yeah. it was anthropologists who really kept the case going. And, Aww. you know, 
couldn't let it go because it was so interesting. Yeah. And just to give some context, like you never know what you're going to get when you start going into these cases. Right. I use this one as an example a lot because it's the one that people know us the best for, I think. Yeah. Um, well, it was until recently. Yeah. But we went into this going, oh, what happened to this poor man who was cut up and left in the cave? Right. Oh, what happened to him? Who did this to him? Why did they do this to him? Well, it turns out the answer was he axe murdered his wife. Oh, oh my gosh. So oh, wow. um, you really don't know right. who you're dealing with until the end. And what does that mean about who matters? What it means is that right. everything matters because 100%. you can't leave people out. Right. <laughs> yep. Still at the end of the day, it's still an unsolved John Doe case. And so, yep. you know, absolutely. It, it does show that we can't be selective of who we consider a, a case or who we don't. Mm-hmm. Like everyone yeah. deserves their name, no matter what they Absolutely. do deserve their name. Definitely. Um, and then most recently, since leaving the DNA project, we were the team who solved the Delta Dawn case, yeah. Alicia Heinrich, yeah. and also the Christine Jessup perpetrator case, Yep, which was a really, really, really important case to us because of yeah. so many reasons, obvious reasons of uh, her family needing the closure of knowing who did this yeah. to their child and, and sister, but also because there had been a wrongful conviction on that case Oof. before. Uh, yeah. In the 90s, there was a man who went to prison and then was exonerated and released. So he needed that closure too, because right. there were still people who looked at him suspiciously, like, should they really have <sighs> let him out? Are we sure that he's innocent? Like, even oh, though he God. was exonerated with DNA, he was it was in the 90s, right. so yeah. people didn't really understand DNA super well in the 90s. Right. There was still a lot of DNA denial going on back yeah, then. Yeah, and there still is, honestly. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So he's really lived his whole life under kind of a, a cloud of suspicion. And so it oh. felt good to be able to clear that for him, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No one wants to have that, especially when they're innocent. Mm-hmm. No one needs to deal with that every single day, knowing that someone's looking at you and wondering why or knowing why they're looking at you and, and having that in your head all the time when you're innocent. It just, oh, that hurts my heart. Wrongful conviction cases get me every yeah. time. Yeah, we have one that we advised on that we're still working on right now of a man named Travis Kingsbury, who was convicted of homicide and given life without parole. And he's in uh, prison in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have information up on our page about him. He also has a website, freetravis.com. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. He's working to try to get his case reopened because his DNA evidence was not properly processed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. It was not properly evaluated in the case really needs a new trial. Yeah. Uh, And that's, again, that's also something we can share on our socials as well for folks. So if you want to be a part of that, the more advocates, the better. Absolutely. So we can definitely help share that as well. And so I have to ask, what cases have inspired you both to just keep doing this work every day? Uh, All of them, really. (laughs) Um, Yeah. One of the the first two cases that we worked on with the DNA Doe Project, I specifically asked to be put on because I was pretty sure that I was related to her. And that was the bell of the well. We were distantly related, but my family comes from that area. We're all from the Appalachian Mountains. So there's a pretty good chance she's my kin. I should be working on this case. So, I mean, that's one of the things that got us started. And, you know, other, other ones were like, the pillar point dough case. Um, yeah. We can get more into that. Like pretty much every one of them, there's something that I see in them that makes me go, you know, I care about this person, even with yeah. Henry Lovelace. Like, honestly, like you spend right. that much time working on somebody's family tree 
at the end of the day, it's like, yes, you did this horrible thing, but at the end of the day, I'm also like, damn it, Henry, why'd you do that? (laughs) Yeah, because you you do get attached, I'm sure, and in your own way, like, how do you not? You've, You've spent so much time dedicated to finding out who this person is that, you know, you always hope they're a good person, but, you know, that's not always the case. It doesn't change that emotional connection. Yeah. And that's something that I I've said it before and I'll say it again is that these paths are absolutely worn with love. We started learning how to do this work to take care of our own families. And so that neural pathway is already there. So of course we get attached to these people. We take care of them like they're our family. We we basically foster them until we know who they belong to. Oh, I love that analogy. That is a beautiful analogy. It's just how it has to be. I mean, we, we give yeah. we give little nicknames to our cases internally when we're working on them so that Aww. we don't have to like refer to them by like Jane Doe from this year or this case number. So yeah. They're, they're more like, you know, people that we care about. We actually have an upcoming case right now that has a fundraiser that's live. Oh, okay. And we are, we're using her nickname publicly because the investigator liked it so much that she's Aww. she's just called Penny now. Yeah, she's Preble County Penny. Got her up on her I like Penny. Yeah, and That's we're trying cute. to get uh, her funded so that she can get through the lab process. We know exactly which labs we're working with and we just yeah. the agency would be able to know where to send her and when. Um, but yeah, all of them, like even with the yeah. Delta Dawn case, Alicia Heinrich, like she would have been my Ugh. age. I'm painfully aware of that. People look at her case and they go, oh, this poor little girl. I look at this case and yeah. I go, she could be here with me right now working on this case yeah. if somebody didn't do that to her. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that case. Uh, Ash knows I have been obsessed with that. It's Delta Dawn that I have followed that case since I was a teenager. And when I saw the article saying they would given her her name, I like cheered and texted Ash. and was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I was like on and on about this. I had not actually realized at that time <laughs> that it was Redgrave who was involved with it. Um, I think it was like right before we had met. So it became kind of a ironic thing. And, um, you know, last time we chatted, I didn't want to mention it when we were talking about Finley because I wanted to give that yeah. case its due. But, um, you know, that was one for me that like I have always had a very, very soft spot for that case. It's always stuck with me. So I was so happy to see her given a name and and hopefully justice will be done for her soon. So we're still looking out for, for her mom too. Yeah, because her mom is still... Yeah, missing has been because she would be gosh that's what a 30 year old case i want to say 30 plus yeah 82 yeah i was trying to remember i was like was it 84 or 82 yeah so she's been missing too this whole time yeah. so chances are high she's probably another jane doe that hasn't been associated we're pretty sure yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people who have put forth some comparisons um that we've seen and we'd advise that they just send them in. Yeah. You know, the agency is taking them all seriously. That's awesome. So it just shows no matter how much time goes by, these get solved. And, you know, the work you do is so important because she, no one would know she would still be Delta Dawn if it weren't for the work that you all had done. So we hear that she's getting a new headstone soon. She is. We always like that part. That part's always nice. Mm Where we can swap out the headstone. Yeah. yeah, that's what I always hope for is my boy in the box will eventually get him. Yeah, so, so yeah. yeah, 
like that, like, oh, sorry, it gets me. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, you do have these, even we do, and we're not as close to the cases as you all are. But Ash and I get very attached to a lot of these cases when we're in them day in and day out, you know, researching, learning everything we can, you get super attached. Yeah. There's a few of them that we don't have contact with the agencies yet that we're trying to, yeah. we're trying to reach out that are like that. We, we tend to get attached to the lesser known ones because we're suckers for hard luck cases. <laughs> us, us too. Yeah. We understand this pain deeply. Yeah. There's a few of them, <laughs> another one who might be my cousin, another one who reminds me a little too much of myself, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ones that just hit that you're like, there's something about them that you feel mm -hmm. like it's a sibling or someone you love or you, you know, you feel like you know them before you even start. Yeah. I'm going to give a little shout out to one of our interns, uh, our intern. Yay. <laughs> our intern, Olivia, is um, very invested in this one case. That's just it's just a skull fragment. Oh, wow. it's just a skull fragment size skull piece. It's just a skull piece. <laughs> oh, and it has a name profile. <gasps> What? Some yeah. Amazing. I think that it's that it's really interesting to look at cases that have really fascinating stories, but yeah. it's also really interesting to look at cases that have almost no story at all. Those are the ones that get me the most. I know that's usually kind of our marker too. We'll look at something and be like, there's like no information. How much can we find? It becomes a challenge of like, mm -hmm. can we get enough to cover this? And can we get enough to get attention to this? So. I like that. Yeah, that's we're the same way. It's never the sensational cases that get Ash and I. They're interesting, but they're and we're we're into true crime in general, but they're not the cases that we're like, those are the ones we want to cover. It's the cases like Delta Dawn. Those are the ones that always we're just like, wait, what? It's that <laughs> I want to dig a little deeper. I want to pick at it a little more and see what's going on here. I, I totally get this fascination. I think that with the Delta Dawn case, there was just enough sketchy information to capture people's imaginations of what could that possibly mean. Right. Absolutely. And I think that case too, it, I often think too, and correct me if this is kind of a weird assumption, but I feel like the cases with the Jane and John Doe's where a nickname has been given, I do feel like those tend to capture attention a little bit more than the ones where they don't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's yeah. always something I've noticed. Like if there's a nickname, even if it's not like, you know, boy in the box, everybody knows that case. They may not know the ins and outs of it, but they know the case. Delta Dawn is another one that that folks know. So you may not know a case such as like the Finley Creek Jane Doe or what have you. Everyone there gave her a nickname, which I think has really helped. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, that's something too. I think it's just like weird human aspect that we we need a name to associate with them before they become real. I don't know yeah, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's exactly why we do internal nicknames for our cases. Yeah. They don't already have one that's easy to grab onto that we can chat easily about the case right. while, you know, while referencing it. We'll make one up because you have to humanize them because you're you are talking about a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it doesn't feel good to to just refer to people by, you know, counties and years. Yeah. 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 I, I feel the same. It always feels very um disingenuine. Like you're just like, I'm trying to help you, but I, I don't even know. Like I'm calling you a county name, you know? Yeah. Anytime we've covered them, it's hard. Yeah. That's that's one of the other things that we love about our our anthropology friends is like every single time they're talking about any little piece of human remains, they're like this individual. I love that like, this is a person. And I love my anthropologists. They're the best. Yes. <laughs> Cause it doesn't matter how old this is. They're still a person. Even when you find remains in archeology, span it's still a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's it for part one nerdlings. 
We hope you'll join us for part two of our interview with Lee and Anthony Redgrave from Redgrave Research Forensic Services. If you want to check out the cases they've helped solve and learn more about their work, go to redgraveresearch.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Transdo Task Force, check it out at transdotaskforce.org. Currently, a case the Redgraves are working on that is accepting donations is that of Eaton, Ohio's Jane Doe, who has been nicknamed Penny. There is currently a GoFundMe available to help cover cost of testing, so if you'd like to donate, the link to her fundraising site is in our description below. We will catch you next time on Part 2.